Good morning. You can have a seat if you want. My name is Gary Treichler, and I'm one of the pastors here at Vista. We're glad that you're here. Kids, thanks for joining us in worship. If you'd like to go to Kids Community, Miss Emily is over there. And while they're going, let me uh, direct you to the QR code or the, uh, the uh, connection card in your seat back. Um, whether this is your home or whether you're, whether you're visiting with us, you're visiting with us, welcome. We're glad that you're here. We'd like to know from that card uh, that you're here if there's any way that we can pray for you or come alongside of you, we would like to do that. So before Mike comes up and delivers the message, let me direct you to the screens at the top. Morning. Nice to see you. Thanks for being here. <clears throat> the beginning of that um, promo, uh, there, there's, there's pictures and uh, examples. There's like people throwing rocks at each other. <laughs> and you can just see the chaos. Um, and that's precisely what happens when God's not um, honored um, as the one that's in authority. Right? When God's not honored as the one that's in authority, then every, everybody, or, or at least the powerful people, get, you know, they're, they're trying to wrest that control or gain that authority. Um, Jeremiah 5 captures God's words uh, this way. A horrible and shocking thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy lies. The priests rule by their own authority. And my people <laughs> love it this way. That's kind of weird. Why would you love it? Like, you know, we're not throwing rocks at each other much anymore. Um, that comes by way of um, social media probably more than anything else. We, that's the way we throw our sticks and stones. Um, but who would say that we love it? Well, we, don't, we wouldn't say, well, I love the fact that God's not in authority in this world, that these power centers are in authority. We wouldn't say that. Um, we would instead um, capitulate. Uh, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't stand up. We would listen to it. We would actually resource it in ways that we just don't think matter. Um, that's maybe the most shocking thing about that statement. It's not so shocking to me that leaders are lying and um, resting control and grappling for their, the authority, but it's that the people love it that way. We just need to be careful, right? We need to be attentive to the ways that we honor the wrong authorities. Does that, does that make sense? We need to think about the ways that we take authority ourselves, right? How, how often do we cherry pick the scriptures? Like, I believe this, but I don't believe that. Or uh, we listen to God on this front, but we don't listen to God on that front. That's the same thing. That's us taking our, the authority into our own hands, That's not to say that subjecting yourself to the authority of God is an easy thing. It's not, it's not an easy thing. It's ch challenging. Maybe, maybe one of the most difficult things that we, we need to do in this lifetime. It takes a, a lot of uh, dying to self, self-sacrifice. It, it means not having yourself at the center and building your own authority structures, right? It, that's a pretty difficult thing. But the, the, the great thing is that 
when we subject ourselves to the authority of God, it leads to um, something in your own life that is rich. Um, there's, a, there's a gravitas that comes, which is very strange. We, we think that when we give our lives over to submission to something else that we, we have lost something. But in God's economy, when we subject ourselves to his authority, something is gained that can be gained no other way. There is a gravitas that comes as a result of submission to God's authority. And this is what we're going to get into a little bit today. I know it seems like a heavy thing. Uh, We're going to talk about authority, what it is, how we respond to it, um, and how it relates to following Jesus, which is what we're doing as Christians. There's There's a lot to be said about authority in our following of Jesus. We might not think of those in in those terms, but it's true. Um, This remarkable Jesus, this uh, one that we are studying (laughs) comprehensively through the book of Mark. We are not out of chapter one, and this is the ninth message. Time 16 is something like three and a half years, which is fine, whatever it takes to know Jesus better. Here's where we are. You met last week, if you were here last week, it was a debacle in terms of time. Like I lost track of my time and I couldn't figure it out from all the different clocks up there. Look at my clock. This, this, it's a big, huge red number counting down so I can't miss it. Are you telling me I'm already 10 minutes in or did it start at 30? It should have started at I haven't gone 10 minutes yet, have I? I just, that, that's, yeah, I can't. Okay, so I, all right. It's still confusing. Big red block. I don't know where it started. Here's here's where we are in in Mark so far. This is what we've learned about Jesus. In in the beginning of Mark, you have John the Baptist, and he is baptizing people with water and and calling them to repentance. And there's a ton of people that are following him. Tons of people are following him and changing their lives and um, subjecting themselves to this uh, ritual of being dunked in the water and brought out. And they, here's why they're changing. Here's why they're going down this path. They don't like what their life is producing. They've, they've looked at the outcomes of their life. They look at the, the condition of their life, and they don't like it. This is why we change or we try to change. There's something being, that I'm producing that is coming about as a result of me that is not to, it's either not right or it's not to my liking. So we change. And this is what's happening Uh, People are using their own agency, their own ability to say, I want something different. And John is calling them into a kingdom life, a God life. And they're saying, I want that. And then they would demonstrate that shift through their baptism. That's the same for us. It's 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 a personal choice to say yes to Jesus and then like die to this old life and, and rise to, to a new one. That, that's, what's go, that's what's going on. And he also says, John says, but there's someone coming that's greater than me and he'll baptize you with the spirit, which that's, think about that. John is saying, look, I, what happens when you change your mind and follow um, the ways of God that I'm directing you on is we, we do this water thing. But there's one who's coming that's greater than me that's not going to immerse you in water. He's going to immerse you in the spirit of God. That your change is going to to be uh, joined in and 
pressed into by the kingdom of God itself. That's shocking information. When, when this man calls you to repentance, he's not going to baptize you with water. He's going to baptize you with the Spirit of God. He's going to immerse you in that. That's, that's, the, that's the soup in which your change is going to happen and what the outcomes of your life are going to align with is the Spirit of God. And then Jesus comes. He shows up. And subjects himself to water baptism by John. And then what happens? Exactly what he said. The Spirit shows up and immerses Jesus right there as he's being immersed in the water. It descends in some way that people could recognize. And then a voice from heaven says, This is my Son with whom I am well pleased. You are my Son with whom I am well pleased. He is anointed by the Spirit. Then Jesus rises. The same Spirit who gently comes upon him drives him, the Scriptures say, out into the wilderness where he enters this test that includes evil. And he learns. I don't know if he learns. Is that the right word? He is, it is confirmed in him that he is the Son of God. This is what the test is. The test reveals the truth about, he is, about who he is. And we learned a bunch of things that I would love to go into again and again. But just simply, we learned that the circumstances of life don't define God. How often do we do that? We look at the circumstances of life and think that it has something to do with the power and the compassion of God. It does not. Disconnect it. We understand that life is more than eating it's not about bread alone. There's something more to life than sustaining this body. There's more to life than feeding the appetites of this body. There is something eternal about life. Life is a test. We learn it is, it is a test. It is a struggle where we are refined. What is, what is out of alignment with God is identified, and he leads us by his spirit into change and transformation. And we, learn, and we learn that evil has no power, none, absolutely none, to take away your kingdom identity and your kingdom purposes and your adoption to God unless you choose to give up your faith in God and bow down to it. It has no power. You have to give it away. It's no power to take it. It's good, 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 good stuff. And then John the Baptist gets arrested and Jesus starts proclaiming the gospel saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus has showed up. He's been affirmed. He's been anointed. He's been confirmed. And he has begun to be and become like no other human before or since with an unshakable faith, a resolute walk toward his God-ordained destiny and fate, all the while compelling people to come with him. This is what we see. And we're not out of chapter 1. But we get to this verse, 
in Mark 1, verse 21, it speaks to authority. It goes like Jesus. Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching, but he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Jesus went into the synagogue, began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching, but he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. This had to be utterly annoying, annoying to those who have been teaching for years and years in the synagogue. And the new guy comes, and everybody's enamored with him. He's amazing. He's got this authority. Authority. No, we have the authority. It's ours. It's been given to us. It's been entrusted to us. And these teachers of the law, you're like, what are you saying? You know we have the authority. We've been, it's been traditionally respected. It's been uh, legally uh, identified. Uh, what, are you, what are you talking about? When we think about authority, when you think about authority, I've said that word a hundred times already this morning. What do you think of? What do we think of? Well, we think of sort of traditional hierarchical models of authority, power positions, right? Those who are above us or who have been assigned to decide and enforce things, whether it's uh, priests or police officers or parents, right? We, we, we think of those who uh, have the power or the right to give orders or make decisions, uh, those that we answer to or uh, are compelled to conform to, right? That's, that's authority. <laughs> These teachers of the law that Jesus is being compared to, they were the authority figures in the Jewish culture. And all respects of authority, they were it. They'd earn it. It came with the role. And they would have secured that authority. They would have secured that authority with an unparalleled knowledge and demonstration, as it were, of the scriptures that were authoritative over their lives, right? So the, the, the words of God that, that directed and guided and compelled the people of God, these guys who were in authority were authorities on the authoritative word. I mean, there was these, they were in authority. Am I making myself clear? So when the people say, well, it's Jesus. He has authority, unlike this. It, it had to be confoundingly frustrating. But here's the thing. It's not the same sort of authority. It's different. It says, it says he had authority. Like, it, it, it's as though it hadn't been given. It hadn't necessarily been exercised. It hadn't been really been demonstrated, right? I'm sure all those things were true, but what they were saying was something beyond the superficial. It was like, there's something about him. He has something that these authorities don't have. What, 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 what was happening? What was happening that was causing Regular, run-of-the-mill people like you and me say, this man has an authority that the authorities don't have. Let's look a little deeper into this, these moments where Jesus starts to teach. And let's start in the synagogue. Okay, so Mark, in typical fashion, says Jesus went to the synagogue and the people said that he had authority. <laughs> it's kind of like when he said Jesus went into the wilderness and he was tested and tempted by Satan. That's it. That's all Mark is. Mark says, you want to know more? Talk to the other uh, guys that are writing. So we went to Matthew for the wilderness. And we go to Luke to hear 
a little bit more about what happened in the synagogue where the people said this. And we pick it up in four. I don't think this is on your screen. So listen, and I'm not going to accentuate the word me, but I want to. I want, you to, I want you to hear the word me, but I'm not going to accentuate it because I'm convinced, utterly convinced that Jesus wouldn't have either. But I need you to hear the word me. So here's what the scripture says. Luke 4, verse 6, Jesus went to the synagogue, which is where Mark let off, and he stood up to read. It was his custom. It wasn't unusual for him to do that. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. I imagine it was one of the scrolls of Isaiah because there would have been multiple scrolls. It was a long, long letter. And it would take forever to find, you know, Isaiah 61, which is where he went. And then he reads. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Hey, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Let me read again. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Now wait. Think about what just happened. What did we just read in Mark 1? Jesus is baptized, and what happens? The Spirit of God comes on him. What else happens? A voice of heaven says, you are my son, he is anointed. And then what does Jesus do? He goes to the wilderness, and now he's proclaiming the good news. Now Jesus walks into the synagogue. Not long after that, he opens a scroll and reads this. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering the sight to blind, set at liberty those who are oppressed, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And imagine this, imagine this picture. He stands, he's reading this, and he says, he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of the synagogue, of all in the synagogue, were fixed on him. Right? Imagine what's happening. We know what's happening. Jesus just read about himself. He just read about himself. They don't really know that. You're going to find just another sentence or two later. Isn't this Joseph's son? Isn't this Joseph's son? Why are we sitting here transfixed on this guy right now? What is happening in this room? In the room where it happened, room where it happened, room where it happened. What is happening in that room? They're transfixed. They normally, they would just go, great, great reading of Isaiah. We do this every week. Next thing. Now it's time for the worship team to come up and start going. It's like, oh, we just read the scriptures. But this time, he reads the scriptures. He sits down, and everybody's like, Ooh. wow, okay. Wow, okay. What? But what's going on? What just happened? And Jesus says, after a couple of seconds, I'm sure, dramatic pause, he says, Today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Every time for the last 700 years that we have read Isaiah 61, it's been a prophecy. Today, it becomes history. When you you heard it today for the first time, not as prophecy, but as a fact that just happened. Arguably, they should have rebuked him. They don't know yet that he's the Son of God, that he's the Messiah. That's yet to be revealed. So right now, he's just one of the scribes. What if someone else would have stood up and said, I'm the Messiah, 
and sat down. They would have went, get out. Here's what they said. They all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Here's what threw them. Everybody else that tries to get authority to try to grasp or control is a jerk. They're overbearing, they're conniving, they're condescending, they're pushy. And Jesus just named himself the Messiah, and they're like, this is great. And he's this wonderful man. He's just, the way he's speaking is gracious. You could, and, and, and you could sense it in the room. Wow. Okay, now what? A little deeper, John 4. This is, the, this is what John chose to relay to us. Uh, in this tame, same time frame when Jesus is launching out and sharing the gospel. And in this case, John is talking about when Jesus goes to Samaria to do it, which is another crazy thing. He goes where he's not supposed to go, and he talks to someone he's not supposed to talk to, a woman at the well, a woman of ill repute, no less. And this is the one John chooses to say. Let me tell you what happens when Jesus shares the good news. This woman converses with Jesus, is struck just like the Pharisees and the scribes in that room, and she drops everything she's doing and runs back to town and tells everybody about this man. And listen, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Do you know what a woman's testimony was worth back in this time? Nothing. It was invalid. You would never listen to a woman about anything. There was nothing valid unless it was in the home. And then you better, you better line up or you're going to be in trouble. They're not a, they're no, their testimony is not even valid. Listen, the Samaritans from that town believed in a prophet, a teacher from another country because of what a woman said about him. She said, he told me everything I ever did. So the Samaritans go to Jesus. They urge him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. And they said to the woman, we no longer believe Jesus. We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. <laughs> savior of the, world. the Samaritan, what is the Samaritan doing with that phrase at all? Savior of the world? I don't know where they got that phrase. They must have picked it up when they were, you know, eating over in Judea. Savior of the world. They're not Jews. They're not even God-fearing people. They, I think we could safely assume they don't have a working knowledge of sin. <laughs> uh, you know, lives that are being lived apart from obedience to God. But somehow they understand that this man is going to do something more than improve my happiness, right? This is not what they're saying. When they say he's the savior of the world, they're not saying he's going to make my life better. 
that he's going to improve my standard of living, that he's going he's to shift my circumstances. They're saying something much deeper than this. First, based on what a woman said about a conversation, one conversation. And they're saying, we think this guy, we think this guy is going to lead us, lead this world to a new world order. I mean, that, that, that's what they're saying. After just meeting this guy and hanging out for him today, this guy's going to change the whole planet. That's, that's crazy. That's crazy. Astonishing. They're not just, wow, okay. They are, wow, okay, yes. Yes. There is something going on with this man's authority, and there are no threats coming along with it. There's no bluster. There's no beating of the chest. There's no wealth. There's no standing. There's no following even yet, really, a little bit. This is way beyond any typical experience of authority. Okay, so I want, I'm gonna read, we're going to read through Mark chapter 1, about 12 verses, 16 through 27, that kind of bracket this phrase about authority. And I want you to, to stay with this and see if you can identify what it is that made people declare he had something different. Why did they say that? Let's, let's, let's read through this. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. Okay, so first, like, what are they thinking when he says that? I have no idea, but it doesn't make any sense. It's kooky. What do you mean you're going to get fish? He didn't even explain it. Come, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. It's kind of nutty. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he'd gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he calls them. They left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Okay, let me ask you this. <clears throat> As um, James and John are growing up in the family business, which is pretty sizable because it's them and hired men, how many times do you think those boys wanted to get out of the boat and go do something else? Somebody comes along and says, hey, come with us. We're going to go play. Hey, come with us. We're going to go do this. We're going to go do that. What do you think Zebedee said about that? Don't over my dead body. We're doing work here. Stay in the boat. You're not going anywhere. Now on this particular day, Jesus calls them and they leave. They just leave. When the Sabbath came, they went into the synagogue. Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. Okay. Same synagogue. Same, same situation, because the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who authority, not as teachers of the law. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit in the synagogue, <laughs> who's, in, who's possessed by an impure spirit in the synagogue? Some religious person, some God-fearing person in the synagogue, possessed by What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus says, be quiet and come out. So the impure spirit shook the man violently, came out of him with a shriek. The people were so amazed, they asked the other, what is this? What's going on? What is happening? He teaches a new teaching with authority. He even gives orders to impure spirits, and they obey him. And news about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. What's going on here? What is the common denominator? What 
causes people to say, this man has something others do not. What is it? Is it his position? Is it his personality? Is he, what, what is it that's causing them to say, this man is different? It, it's moving them. It, it causes them to change. It causes them to move. They're not, they, they, normally you sit there and you hear scripture and you go, cool, that's great. Truth, true, amen. When God speaks, it's like, I need to change something. I gotta go. I gotta go tell somebody. I gotta do something. There's something about this man's authority that impacts me and causes movement. What's happening to people? What happened to the woman at the well? What happened to the Samaritan folks who invited Jesus in? What happened to these fishermen, these no-frills, hardworking, common-sense fishermen? What happened to the demons? What happened to the news? It moved. It moved. They believed. They just believed. Jesus was walking around and he was saying, repent, change, and believe. And people were going, oh, wow, okay, yes. Why? Something, I don't know. He had mm, uh, mm, authority, something, gravitas. And Jesus leads people down a path of repentance and belief with an immersion of the Spirit. The Spirit of God is moving. It came upon him. He's subject to it. There, of course, is personal agency. That woman was moved, but then she chose to run and she chose to speak. But she was moved by the spirit. She was moved by this man and the, the, the authority that was within him. And listen to Jesus. Don't you believe that I am the father? This is John 14. Don't you believe that I am the father and that the father is in me? The words I say, listen to this, the words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Jesus would say, you're saying I have an authority, but it's not me. He's answering their question. What, what is it about your authority compared to these? He's like, hey, wait, just listen. I, I'm speaking on my own authority. It's the Father living in me who is doing his work. Spiritual authority, true Godly gravitas that is exemplified in God's Son, the one we follow, is rooted in submission. Jesus was a man under authority. And because he was under that authority, because he was submissive to the Father, the Father worked through him in an authoritative way. 
spiritual, biblical, godly, true authority isn't a means by which to control others. It's not an intellectual superiority or a powerful personality. Spiritual authority exists not through offices, knowledge, or dynamism. Uh, a lot of you won't remember General Norman Schwarzkopf, the bear. He was in charge of Desert Storm and a lot of other things before that. This, this man moved through his military career and literally changed every organization, every outpost, every command into usually the top command. And here's the kind of guy he was. One particular command that he was over, multiple, was failing miserable, miserably. And he decided, I'm going to take over that particular command. <clears throat> so he called ahead, had the co then current commander form up the entire battalion or whatever it is. I was Air Force. I don't know what they called it in the Army. This entire battalion, <clears throat> which would mean he would be at the point and welcome Schwarzkopf when he arose, when he, when, he, when, he, when, he, um, when he arrived, which he did by helicopter. So the helicopter comes down, Schwarzkopf comes out, and now let me tell you what the battalion saw. The battalion saw a normal salute, and then they saw that commander get in the helicopter and leave. The other, the, the current one. Schwarzkopf just fired him right there in front of the entire battalion. He says, you're done, get out. That's some serious authority right there. That's not Jesus' kind of authority. It's not like that. Nor is that what authority is supposed to be like in the church. It's not a controlling, power-hungry, uh, uh, just, you know, I'm in charge and everybody is... That's not what spiritual authority is. It's not a means by which to control others. It's a spiritual depth through which God compels others to obey. It is a spiritual maturity, it is a spiritual gravitas, it, a, it is a space of submission through which God compels others to obey. I'm going to say this a couple different ways. True authority exists in those whose character has been forged through submission to authority, which, by the way, can be learned through numerous different types of authorities. Part of the reason God says, be in authority in spaces in life, parenting, government. He says, yes, yes. Even when it's harsh, even when it's hard, be under that authority. Why? That's how life works. One of the, one of the most significant, powerful, memorable, meaningful parenting tips, teachings that I got was, Make sure that your children know how to live under authority. If they don't learn how to live under authority, they don't understand the freedom and the beauty and the, and the flourishing that can happen within the authority, they will never submit to God. And the second best advice, you can imagine what this was, right? You, Dad must be under authority. Some of the worst dads 
are the ones that are authoritarian, but not under authority. Your parents, your, your, your kids need to see, your spiritual children, th- those that are younger, that need to see what it's like to live under authority. It's the only way this world works is when we are all under the authority of God. And you can learn about that in all sorts of phases of life. And God can use the authority structures of this world to teach us a bit about submission when we don't like it. Spiritual authority is the authority of God working through those who are submitted to his authority. Do we have that graphic, Tina? Did we get that set up? We have this... um, Yes or no? Say loud. Yes, show it. This is how complicated discipleship is at Vista Community Church. We hear from God. We hear from God. You hear from God. We listen to God. We read his word. We, We hear from the community. We understand by listening, humbly listening, what God is compelling us to do, and then we obey. And then we help. We don't, this is, this, I gotta explain this. We don't just serve, we help others listen and obey. That's discipleship. Think of how fast the discipleship model ripples out if everybody does this. Listens, obeys, and then helps somebody else listen and obey. And that they aren't being a true disciple if they're just listening and obeying. They have to be helping someone else listen and obey. The minute they are beginning to listen and obey, you don't wait two, three years before you try to that person have that person help someone listen and obey. So can you think about that? Like, I'm helping you listen and obey. And then you have to turn right around and help somebody else obey. Well, you turn around and right and turn Suddenly, everybody's helping one another listen and obey, and that's what we want. We want everybody under the authority of God listening. The most important thing you will ever do in this life is hear from God and obey. And it will be most meaningful, most transformative when God himself compels you to do it and when it's really, really hard and it's something you don't want to do. So, as you are inviting everyone you know to the Christmas program, everyone you know and everyone you don't know, which who, how does that, does that cover everybody? It does, right? Does anybody else have anybody, any other category? People you know, people you don't know. As you invite everybody you know, why would they come? Why would they come? Are you thinking about your pitch? Thinking about what you can say about it? Why would they come? You invite someone to, your, uh, to dinner with your family from the neighborhood. You invite someone to uh, accompany you to the bridge. Uh, you invite someone into uh, your, your Advent season. Uh, you invite them into your text thread that sends a Bible verse every week. You invite them into um, uh, um, a meeting on a Sunday morning. Why would they come? Why would they come? I suppose they could come for any number of reasons, some of which might be because you did a really good job inviting them. Uh, they like you. 
Um, they don't know how to say no. I don't know. There's a lot of reasons. But the one that's going to matter most is when they come because God compels them by his spirit to obey. Right? That's what we're looking for. When we're interacting with our community, we're interacting with our friends, and we're inviting them to entertain the truths and the, and the life of Jesus, the reason they would respond is because the Spirit of God is immersing, and God himself, by his authority, is calling through you. Now, here's the critical part, right? What do you have to do? What makes you a usable vessel, servant for God? Well, it's your own submission. Are you listening and obeying? Have you heard from God and are not, or, or are you? And are you helping someone else listen and obey? People are going to respond to you when God works through you and calls them. And he works through his authoritative, gravitas, undeniable, oh my, wow, yes, comes to people when we are in the space of, God, I need to hear from you. I confess I have heard from you, and I'm sorry I haven't obeyed. That is in itself obedience. God, I can't. My sin is too great. I've, I've forgotten your son in whose mercy I rest. That's obedience. That's listening and hearing and responding. And when we are in that space, humble submission to the one who is in control, something happens that is deeply meaningful. Building of our own faith, deepening of our own character. When we are bowed before him and obeying, he uses us, immerses us in the spirit and the spirit goes out and people say, what is this, renew? Oh, okay, wow, yeah, sure. And then they go home and they're like, why did I say that? We know. We know. Let me give you 90 seconds here to just drink it in, right? So bow your head, close your eyes. Um, and listen, it starts here. God wants to use you. He wants to use me. He wants to use us together as a church. But he won't, in most cases, if we aren't first listening and obeying. Hear, hear from him and resolve within your own agency to obey. In these moments... Allow the Spirit of God to compel you. In Jesus' name, amen.